Go Eli! Woo! Now that we're all warmed up, hello everybody. Good morning to you all. I hope you had a great weekend, and it is good to be back with you guys. I totally forgot that Valentine's Day was sneaking up until I began doing a little research for today's episode. Honestly, I can't remember the last time I've been on a Valentine's Day date. Not that I'm entirely disappointed. Um, no, I couldn't find a decent starting point for a case to cover today. So I clicked on the author of last week's main source, Cynthia Verde. This led me to her page, where I scrolled through a bunch of her past stories, articles, writings. And by fate alone, it seemed, she had written an article about yet another Sherlock Holmes-type detective of the late 1910s. Although she has an amazing story to tell, and I will cover a bit more of her life later, it was a specific case that she had assisted in solving that stuck out to me, the disappearance of a young girl just before Valentine's Day. Today, I bring you the Ruth Kruger case. My name is Eli, and this is Murder in the Morning. My sources for today come from another Medium article by Cynthia Verde, a piece by David Kay of the New York Post, the Smithsonian Magazine, and the rest I will put down below. It was a chilly but vibrant morning in Harlem, New York, the day of February 13, 1917. Ruth Kruger left her house that morning on Claremont Avenue wearing a blue velvet coat, a black hat adorned with a ribbon, white gloves, and her new graduation ring from Wadley High School. In her hand, she carried a pair of ice skates, as Ruth had planned to get them sharpened that morning. According to the New York Post article, quote, The pretty 18-year-old brunette had just graduated in a midwinter ceremony from Wadley High School on West 114th Street. Her father, Henry Kruger, a bus company executive, said that his daughter, quote, held the promise of magnificent womanhood before her. Bundled up against the cold, Ruth's destination on the morning of February 13th was a grimy motorcycle repair shop on 524 West 127th Street, where a sign hung in the window, Skates Sharpened Here. The teen's family grew concerned when she had not returned home by dinner time that day. Henry Kruger, worried, phoned the two nearest police stations, one on West 125th and one on West 100th, to report his daughter missing. Cops shrugged. They were apparently barred by policy from taking a missing persons report until 24 hours had passed, which was, and still remains to be, one of the dumbest so-called rules police have ever followed. Midnight rolled around, and the family's concerns mounted. Henry reached out to a family friend who marched with him down to the police station, demanding that they take action. They were met by Detective Sergeant John L., a 10-year veteran of the NYPD, who, who told them 99 out of 100 missing people turn up, eventually. Quote, he suggested Ruth was on the prowl. Unthinkable, unthinkable to her father, who said his daughter, a Baptist Sunday school teacher, was devoted to a pure and blameless, blameless life, end quote. The next morning, 
as the police still wouldn't do anything, Ruth's sister, Helen, decided to take matters into her own hands. She remembered her sister mentioning this grimy motorcycle shop and headed there around 9.30 a.m. The door was locked and the shop looked basically closed, so an hour later she returned and was met with the same locked door. Finally, determined, around 2.30 that day, Helen noticed that the store had lights on and she burst in. Within the shop, there were a couple women waiting in line and one man, the owner, assisting his customers. Helen asked the man if she remembered seeing her sister as she described Ruth, and the man nodded, saying she had come in yesterday, dropped off her skates, returned later to pick them up, and that he hadn't seen her since. According to the Smithsonian, Helen rushed home to recount the, to recount the encounter. That was a bad writing move, Eli. Helen rushed home to tell her father what she had found out. He called the police and spoke with a detective who reasoned that the shop's owner, Alfredo Cochi, had initially been absent from his counter because he had other repair jobs in the neighborhood. The detective insisted this, that this Alfredo was a respectable businessman, but still agreed to pay him a visit. Afterward, he wrote a report that consisted solely of one line, quote, I searched the cellar, end quote. And that was the only thing the police did. The NYPD department seemed content to let the case grow cold after simply searching one man's cellar. But Ruth Kruger quickly became a national fixation. The victim's profile, young, white, attractive, from a pretty respectable family, it revived interest in the idea that the thousands of girls who vanished every year in New York and other large cities in that matter, had one way or another entered the, quote, sporting, sporting life or sex work. Quote, the New York Police Department suggested that Ruth Kruger fit this profile, saying she wanted to get lost, and presenting scenarios that might explain her motive for running away. One witness spotted a girl matching her description climbing into a taxi with an unidentified man. Another suspect, whose name was never released, was believed to have been, excuse me, was believed to have met Miss Kruger several times without the knowledge of her parents. Meanwhile, Mr. Alfredo Cochi fled back to his native Italy and escaped the Kruger family suspected was aided by police, end quote. At this point, Henry Kruger was done with the law enforcement. He put $1,000 of his own money towards a reward for any information regarding his daughter, which was roughly the equivalent of $20,000 in today's money. And then he hired lawyer-turned-investigator Grace Humiston. According to History Extra, born in 1869 to a wealthy family, Mary Grace Winterton grew up in and out of courtrooms as she often accompanied her father, an insurance claims adjuster, on cases where his expertise was needed. After graduating from Hunter College, Grace became a teacher and married a doctor, both highly conventional actions for a young woman of her upbringing and position. But when she divorced her husband because of alleged peephole practices at his office, Grace set her eyes on law school. New York University was the only law school in New York to admit women, so Grace enrolled in the night class alongside part-time baseball players and immigrants. 
Her affinity for case law soon got her noticed and she was quickly bumped up to the day classes. She graduated in two years, ranked seventh overall, and was one of only 12 women in her class. Quote, after passing the New York bar, she didn't use her skills to help manage her family's money as most surmise she would do. Instead, she opened the People's Law Firm, a small legal clinic with an open-door policy to the poor immigrants of the city. The sign on the door read, quote, Justice for those of limited means for moderate fees. Sometimes those fees were hot suppers or hand-woven sweaters or simply nothing at all. Grace didn't care. She took cases ranging from questions of European marriage legality to stolen Spanish gems. She earned herself an almost legendary status among the poor, opening satellite offices in all of the ethnic neighborhoods. Many of these communities had nicknames for her, but she was always known as the woman who wore black, though no one really knew why, end quote. Soon, some of the cases garnered her attention in the media and beyond New York City. Some papers even referred to her as the female Sherlock Holmes, and this attention was enough for Henry Kruger to enlist her help. Knowing that of all people, she would at least show the family a little more kindness than the police did. Grace started working on Ruth's disappearance immediately, putting in 15-hour days completely pro bono. She interviewed neighbors and longtime residents, even staking out Kochi's shop from time to time. Quote, one man recalled seeing Kochi emerge from his basement around midnight, around midnight on February 13th, covered it with dirt and appearing nervous. Another man spotted him the following night again, dirty and nervous. On this evidence, Grace went to Kochi's shop, determined to get into the cellar. Alfredo Kochi's wife appeared at the door wielding a brick. She said, I will split your skull with this brick if you try and come in here. Grace went on to use this threat as a means to obtain a search warrant from the commissioner, which I don't think wouldn't fly today. I mean, people are threatening their neighbors all the time or shooting them for accidentally crossing property lines. On June 16, 1917, she enlisted the help of her friend Patrick S. to search Alfred Kochi's shop while the police officers stood by unbothered. According to the Smithsonian, Patrick started in the main basement room directly beneath the shop. A cluster of benches, toolboxes, and chests of drawers created this triangular work area. He noticed that one of the chests along the southeast corner of the room slanted a bit, protruding an inch beyond the others and he asked a couple people to help move it. Quote, They discovered that the concrete floor beneath had been smashed with a hatchet or axe and then sliced with a saw. They took turns digging, removing layers of ashes, cinders, dirt, and chips of broken concrete. Further down, embedded in the dirt, they found a pair of dark trousers with pinstripes and stains. Beneath that, a large sheet of rubber carefully arranged to prevent any odor from rising to the surface. Three feet down, the pit sloped to the west. A shovel struck something hard. Patrick lowered himself into the hole and felt a sharp knob, the exposed hip of a body. They pulled this body up inch by inch, carefully sweeping away the dirt. A piece of hemp rope nine feet long was knotted tightly around the ankles, 
cutting into the flesh. A towel looped around the neck. The feet still had shoes and stockings, both brown, and the blue of a velvet coat had faded to a slate gray. Worn gloves still concealed her hands, and a black hat lay smashed deep inside the pit. The final discovery was a pair of ice skates, covered with mottled blood. End quote. Upon further inspection, it was clear that the back of her skull had been smashed in just behind her left ear. Henry Kruger, who unfortunately had been waiting outside, was not allowed to go in, but later confirmed his daughter's identity by her graduation ring. Quote, an autopsy revealed a deep gash in Ruth's abdomen extending to her spine, carved with the blade of her own skate, an injury that classified the case as of the times a, quote, ripper. Otto H. Schultz, a medical assistant to the DA, determined that the killer inflicted the wound after the blow that crushed Ruth's skull, but before she died, end quote. Confirming the family's suspicions and the lack of police work, a warrant for the arrest of Kochi was issued. The Italian government wouldn't extradite him, but they did agree to sentence him there for the murder of Ruth Kruger. After his arrest, he would eventually voluntarily confess to her murder, saying, quote, I had never seen Ruth Kruger before she came to my shop to have her skate sharpened that morning. From the very beginning, Ruth did all in her power to attract my attention. I felt something strange when her dark, penetrating eyes fixated on mine. I was still more concerned. I was still more disconcerted when she came again to get her skates. An overpowering attraction for the young woman seized me. What happened afterward seemed like a dream. End quote. He would go on to be sentenced to 27 years in prison for his crime. However, not everyone was satisfied, most notably Mrs. Grace Humiston. Quote, she publicly accused the NYPD of negligence, and a subsequent investigation by the police commissioner revealed a long-standing, mutually beneficial relationship between Kochi and the department. If an officer arrested someone for speeding, he would send the offender to Kochi, suggesting that this repairman was able to compromise cases for a small fee. Kochi would collect the fee, keep a portion for himself, and kick back the rest to the officer. End quote. Grace would go on to be named a special investigator of the New York Police Department, but as the years waned on, she would slowly be left out of the history pages, whether due to jealousy or something innate in the media. Future articles of her accolades, including the Kruger case, would leave her name out entirely. And that, my friends, is the case of Ruth Kruger and how Grace Humiston solved it when others refused to. The past two episodes felt very similar. 1910s, female-esque Sherlock Holmes, and lazy male detectives who couldn't be bothered to lift a finger. But I'm really quite happy to have stumbled across these. I doubt I had ever heard Alice Clement's name, let alone Grace Humiston. There's just, there's something about how these women see things that other people can't or won't. Okie dokie. Uh, before I play the outro, thank you once again for taking the time out of your day. A bit shorter this morning, but as always, we will be highlighting another story after the music. 
Okie dokie. Bye-bye. Love you. Hey, lately, and I hope you don't hate me for this, uh, I cannot get away from these larger-than-life detectives who give even Sherlock Holmes a run for his money. And today's no different. This second story is the story of how Ellis Parker solved the story of the case of the pickled corpse story. <laughs> Sorry. Ellis Parker and the case of the pickled corpse. Quote, When on October 5th, 1920, a 60-year-old bank runner disappeared with a pouch containing $70,000 in cash and another $30,000 in securities, it was assumed he had absconded. Investigators showed that although considered to be a prim, to be a prime husband, David Paul of Camden, New Jersey, was quite a wild lover and had taken part in numerous orgies at a cottage some distance outside of town. His sex-oriented friends insisted they had not seen him the night before his disappearance. Then, 11 days later, Paul's body was found in a shallow grave in a wooded area. He had been shot through the head. Mysteriously, while the ground around the corpse was bone dry, Paul's overcoat and clothing were sopping wet. The only explanation the police could come up with was that possibly his murderer hadn't been sure whether the bullet had killed him and had therefore drowned him in a nearby stream. He had been dead, according to an autopsy, for only 48 to 72 hours. Thus, either he had absconded with the money and was later killed for it, or he had been kidnapped at the start but kept alive by his abductor for eight or nine days before being eliminated. Enter the detective. Ellis Parker was a five-foot-six, soft-spoken, blue-eyed, gentle-looking man who could have passed for a small-town grocer or almost anything but what he was, the chief of detectives of Burlington County, New Jersey. Known as the, quote, county detective with a worldwide reputation, Ellis Parker was noted for his ability as a crime solver. Parker firmly believed that the logical interpretation of facts was almost always the correct one. So far as alibis were concerned, he was convinced that most criminals fabricate an alibi before they commit a crime. Therefore, he automatically suspected any person with an alibi. He once nailed a soldier for the murder of a fellow GI at Fort Dix. Even though there were over 100 suspects, only one man could provide an alibi for the time the crime was committed. It was illogical for someone to remember what he was doing three months previous, so the soldier with the alibi headed up Parker's suspect list. This shrewd detective soon found incriminating evidence against the murderer and got a confession. Two things about the Paul case struck Parker as illogical. One was that the killer or killers had apparently kept the victim alive for eight or nine days. If they were going to kill him, logic demanded that they do it immediately. The second illogical fact was that, was, 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 was that the dead man's clothing had been soaking wet. Parker concluded that these two perplexing facts must somehow be related. The more he thought about the case, 
the more he felt that Paul had been killed at once, regardless of medical findings. Parker would have instantly realized the reason for the victim's wet clothing had Camden County been in his own jurisdiction. He would have known about the water in Bread and Cheese Run, a the name of a river in the area, a funny little name, Bread and Cheese Run. I love it. As it was, he did not guess the solution until it happened until he happened to discover that tanning factories lay upstream. At this point, he filled a bottle of water, he filled a bottle with water and took it to a chemist for analysis. The river Bread and Cheese Run, he discovered, contained a high percentage of tannic acid. And tannic acid is an excellent preservative. A body submerged in the stream would undergo virtually no decomposition in 10 days and would therefore appear to be that of a person dead only one or two days. Once Parker had determined that Paul was killed close to the time of his disappearance, he re-examined alibis. The fact that the killer or killers knew about the chemical properties of the stream meant that they were locals. Who would have been questioned about the Paul case who didn't have an alibi for the time he disappeared, but did have one for the false period of the murder? The answer was Frank James and Raymond Shuck, the two men who shared an orgy cottage with Paul. Frank James, a salesman, had been in Detroit for five days at a convention, but that merely proved he couldn't have murdered Paul on the day that he allegedly was killed. Raymond Shuck was in the same boat. He had conveniently, he had conveniently gone to visit friends downstate during that supposedly critical period. Ellis Parker found that while the two men had not spent any large sums of money recently, Shuck, a married man, had given a girlfriend who frequented the cottage an expensive fur coat the day after Paul's disappearance. Separately, Ellis Parker broke these two men down, first building up their confidence and then shattering their useless alibis. Each confessed, meanwhile insisting that the other had done the actual killing. Most of the stolen money was found buried in a Camden cemetery in the grave of Raymond Shuck's mother. In the end, both men were executed for this crime. Ellis Parker managed to carve out an illustrious record in four decades of detective work. During this time, he solved about 350 crimes, including 118 out of the 124 murder cases submitted to him, which is mind-blowing. Yet, he ended up a tragic figure. When news of the Lindbergh kidnapping broke in 1932, Parker was insulted because the law officials who had leaned on him so much in the past failed to contact him. Parker brooded about the case, and after the arrest of Bruno Hauptmann, he became convinced that the real culprit was Paul Wendell, a Trenton, New Jersey man. Ellis Parker virtually kidnapped Wendell and held him captive in various hideaways in Brooklyn and New Jersey until he, extra until he extracted a so-called confession. In court, Wendell effectively refuted this confession, and Parker faced a federal charge of abduction. He was sent to prison for six years and died at the penitentiary at Lewisburg, PA, before he had finished half of his sentence. End quote. Woo! Ellis Parker. He solved cases for 40 years like an absolute madman, and then he turned into one and held somebody captive and went to jail and died. But that is the case of the pickled corpse and a brief look into the life of Ellis Parker.
Huh. I really like that last story. I, I want to find more oldie but goodies like that. I hope you enjoyed it as well, of course. And uh, without further ado, I hope you guys have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. Okie dokie. Bye-bye. Love you.